Welcome to Last First State Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. This is episode number 409, Roger Nygaard, The Truth About Marriage. Hello, everybody. I am Sandy Weiner, and welcome to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late for love and that a woman of value naturally attracts the respect and rewards she deserves in life and love. Speaking of woman of value, my book is now available on Amazon and Kindle and paperback, and it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. So go and grab a copy and you'll have 30 tips about becoming a woman of value. And I share these tips every single week here on the show. So this week's tip is forgive yourself and others. Forgiveness is something that many of us struggle with when we're really hurt by somebody in a relationship. We hold on to anger. And I've known people who go to their dying day, you know, I am never going to move on from this person because they hurt me so badly. And so we hurt ourselves when we don't forgive ourselves and we don't forgive others. So my challenge to you this week is to really try to release and forgive, to move on for yourself more than anything else. This is not about condoning bad behaviors. This is about you being free to find the love you deserve. And before I bring Roger on, I just want to let you know I have a fantastic Facebook group on uh, it's called Your Last First Date, and it's for women over 40 who are seeking healthy relationships. This is a very heavily monitored group so that the posts are kind and supportive and it's not a place to just come and vent and say horrible things about men. We are really uh, focused on your personal growth. So join your last first date. And now our guest, Roger Nygaard, he has a book out and a documentary called The Truth About Marriage. I absolutely loved it. And I think you will too, because he examines how all of us can have happier relationships. He has directed TV series such as The Office, The Bernie Mac Show, and he's edited Emmy-nominated episodes of Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm. As an award-winning documentarian, he often tackles serious topics in humorous ways, like with Trekkies and the nature of existence. Welcome to the show, Roger. Hello. Hey, I have no problem being critical of men, so feel free. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, we'll just spend the whole episode just talking about how horrible men are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, they could use some work. (laughs) We could all use some work, I think. Um, So what inspired you to make this documentary about the truth about marriage? Yeah, I wanted to know the truth. I, I felt like I was a failure. I had not been able to get married and I had been in love multiple times and it always ended badly, disastrously, or just ended and I didn't want it to. And I wanted to find out what was wrong. Uh, it, it, my documentaries tend to be in a, a big way or they become sort of personal therapy <laughs> where uh, there's a, a question or a problem that really consumes me. And so I set out to research and solve a question and I bring my camera along and the audience gets to see and learn what I learn as I do. And in my last documentary, The Nature of Existence, it was existentialism. Why do we exist? I mean, an unanswerable question really, but I wanted to find some answer for myself. And after I finished that, 
try to solve existence itself, I felt like I needed a new challenge, even more inexplicable, and only marriage seemed appropriate. So the next question that I set out to solve, which was really keeping me awake at nights, was why are relationships or why is marriage so hard for people? It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got some answers. I went out and I found some experts and I interrogated yeah. them. A lot of experts <laughs> and a lot of interesting perspectives. And as I was telling you before the show, I recognize so many people who've been on my show, like uh, Bonnie Eco Weil and Tai Tashiro, and I love the Gottmans. And you have you have such a variety of of people, and also the relationships that you had. Um, chosen to profile, I thought were really very varied and gave lots of different opinions. So what was the most surprising thing you learned about relationships by making the documentary? What I think is really hard to settle myself and people in maybe the human psychology, it's hard to settle around the idea that a lot of what we do is predestined. It's based on chemicals. It's based on our history, our, our genetics. The evolution of the species has designed us to be attracted to certain things and to behave in certain ways in situations. We feel like we're making these choice, these, these choices. And the choices are very predictable, as the Gottmans found out, for example. When John Gottman did his research, he found that he could predict with over 90% accuracy whether a couple would still be together or how happy they would be in two years or five years, what have you, by observing them for less than 10 minutes, five minutes. He looked for, he looked for the, what was consistent about each of these different situations, and he found that the presence of contempt, if he saw one person of the couple behaving in a dismissive way, rolling their eyes, dismissing their partner's statements, cutting them off, behaving contemptuously, which is one of his, uh, his four horsemen, it, it, it was a prime indicator for uh, how their longevity for their relationship was probably not going to do well. And I found that fascinating. And there was another uh, scientist named Richard Baker that I tracked down in Southern Spain, who I read his book called uh, Sperm Wars. And he had discovered in the 90s, and this was really controversial at the time, and maybe still is, that when he studied sperm, he found there was many different kinds. There isn't just one fertilizing sperm. Only 1% of sperm fertilizes an egg. So what does that other 90 plus percent do? And he, the closer he looked, he found that they all looked different. There's sperm with big heads, double heads, coiled tails, straight tails, mid, no mid-piece, big mid-piece. They're all different. And some had like a, what he called assassin sperm, had a pointy tip and that could kill another sperm. What he, he theorized and, and found was that when you took the sperm of two different, two different men and put them together, they would fight each other. And so his conclusion was that women would promote sperm warfare within their bodies naturally by collecting the sperm of multiple men within a four to five day period because that's how long sperm could live inside a woman's body in order that the best sperm would win. It was better for evolution. The strongest sperm would fertilize the egg. But this is another way of saying that women were promiscuous. So that's how people looked at it. And of course, the rule of, the, of, of our society now is monogamy which there's reasons that has evolved too. And some of the people you've talked to, Ty Tashiro and others will tell you where monogamy came from. But that was mind blowing to me. I mean, knowing what causes 
the chemical uh, attraction or what causes us to behave the way we do is a way, though, to be able to take control of your life and make choices that are much more informed and ideally lead you down a happier path. And that was my takeaway. Those are good takeaways. And I think that a lot of people use those four horsemen, for example, because that's the way they were brought up or that's, that was what was modeled. And so communication is contemptuous or critical or controlling in all these different ways. And I don't think a lot of people see the truth about themselves. I think that's your next documentary. Well, no, existentialism <laughs> is the truth about yourself. Um, but like people don't see how they come across. They don't see their part in any dissolution of a relationship. You know, we, we're great at finger pointing and blaming it on everybody else. And Today in my Facebook group, Your Last First Date, one of my monitors posted this great post which, uh, in which she shared two stories. In one, it painted this guy as uh, you know, leaving the marriage because he met someone else and he completely abandoned his wife and his children. And in the second, she talked about a guy who uh, would travel a lot and his wife would not treat him very well when he got home and she would leave all the dishes and all the bad stuff for him to do and, and go off and meet her friends. And they were both her story. So you can look at it one way and say it's all his fault and the other one you can say it's all my fault. And then the reality is that we don't have the skills, most of us, to make relationships work. We don't know how to communicate well. We don't know how to bridge gaps. So that's why I do this work, because I grew up not knowing. I did not have great role models for relationship, as most of us don't. And um, I'm wondering what you took away from the documentary and from all the research you did that you applied to your life. Well, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we, it's easier to point the fingers at others than to do the self-work. But your only path to happiness is yourself. You've got to first accept yourself for who and what you are, and then you can make some changes. And you have to accept your partner for who and what they are. No one can really change into something else. You can become more aware and make better choices, and you can change behaviors, but if you're making a change in behavior because your partner's giving you an ultimatum, you're gonna be resistant and then uh, resentful. Eventually, and it's gonna come out in another way. But if you do it, through your own choice, it's going to be much more long lasting and, and be better for both people. What happens is people get into conflicts and they, and they go to, it's really important. That's why counselors exist and, and why people need to go to counselors. One of the psychologists I interviewed, uh, John Friel, said that people come to him, usually it's like going to the ER after you broke your leg six years ago and saying, please fix my leg. And the doctor says, well, I wish you'd come to me right when you broke your leg. I could have helped you. Now you're never, you may never walk right again. We have to re-break it all over again and reset it. And it's the same with uh, e emotional and psychological counseling. It's something that we should have, it should be normal to do from the beginning, even when you're healthy, a check-in with someone who is objective and has good suggestions and strategies for improving. It should be normal that everyone does this all the time. One of the best suggestions that all the experts had was if someone's considering marriage, if you're thinking about getting married right now 
and you want to know what's the best thing you can do to improve your chances for success and longevity and to beat that 50% failure ratio that most that we're all facing, the solution is premarital counseling. And that's where they found statistically religious couples tend to do better than non-religious couples. And it's not because they're religious, they found it's because they're forced to do premarital counseling with a priest or a minister or the rabbi or whomever, where they're just, they talk about what are their goals and their expectations. If you don't talk about your expectations, you're going to have a lot of frustrations when they're not met, because how did your, your partner doesn't even know what your expectations are. Maybe you don't even know what your, your expectations are. And in the back of my book, uh, I wrote a, book, a companion book with the documentary, The Truth About Marriage. Um, I put an addendum where I made a personal priorities checklist. And I got this from one of the, I interviewed a divorce attorney as well as psychologists. And divorce attorneys have to put together a financial profile when someone gets divorced. And he said to me, similarly to the psychologists, that when someone gets married, they should have a, a financial profile. You should exchange your financial profiles. You should know everything about your partner's finances because their debts are going to become your debts. Are you okay with paying off all their debts? Are you okay with sharing half of everything you own? That seems obvious, right? But you might not be aware of your partner's feelings toward credit might be very different than yours. But then he said, just as important is a personal priorities checklist where you both take, and, and I made it like a little test where, and it should be fun. If you love someone, this should be a fun experience where you take these little tests away, check off what's more important to you. One, you, your spouse, your children, your future children, your spouse's children, your spouse's family, your family, work, hobbies, sex, shopping, religion. You rank these things and then you compare each other's rankings. And now you have an idea of what you each hold to be most important. And at least you go in with your eyes open. And then, then um, you should discuss things like, where do you want to live? Where, uh, describe, describe your dream home. How often should you have sex? How much, how dark should the bedroom be? Do you, is it okay to leave the television on all night when you're sleeping? Uh, who, what helps you most when you're angry? Who do you, what do you admire most in your partner? And if you fill out and answer all these questions and then discuss them together with the idea being that you come up with a mutual priorities list and now you're both on the same page going forward. If you make this a fun experience of sharing, now you have given yourself the tools for the best possible chance for the future of your relationship. And to me, that was the most important thing I learned, certainly one of the most important things I learned in this whole experience. I, I, I love that. And I do something similar with my clients called an operating manual, where I have them fill out how they operate best in all the key areas of compatibility and worldview, lifestyle, and sex. And so it's, it's very similar. And I think that we often think that we're aligned, but we don't really know. And divorce is actually, should be a blueprint for marriage because all the things that we talk about in divorce, how we're going to raise our children uh, if we have kids, um, how we're going to split finances, people don't talk about any of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, you, it all boils down to it's a business arrangement, which it is. And it's also, if you have children, it's how are you, what, are you, what are your values? How are you raising children? 
And these are the areas where people fight the most, you know, where, where there's so many disagreements and it's like, oh, I thought this person was that, but they weren't. And if we ask more questions, and most of us don't know what to ask, right? So I love your guide. It's, it's the fact that people both can fill it out and then talk about this stuff. We would save so much heartache if we could be clear, right? Exactly. You know what they say about assumptions, right? You don't want to go into a relationship filled with assumptions because you're going to be, it's a recipe for frustration, which leads to anger, which leads to conflict and fighting, which leads to ending relationships. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think sometimes though, when you do all this research and you know so much, it also becomes hard to find a partner because you're almost like too informed and you expect things from people who have, they're still dating the old way. So have you come across that since you made the documentary? <laughs> it's funny. It's true. When you become overly aware of things, it's hard not to preach to people. Yeah. <laughs> to give right. little lectures about what, well, I know so much. Why don't you know this? Right. I think that's, uh, it is a that's challenge. One of the hardest things that I ha I've done since I became a coach and I've learned all this, especially with my children, is to not be giving advice all the time. It's really to inspire them to ask the right questions and get into the right thought process around these things. Because the Socratic I method, know. right? The Socratic yes, method. The Socratic ask method. questions. Let them let them find out for themselves. Yeah, I mean, because otherwise it's just me pushing an agenda, which never works. Um, so let's let's talk about one of my favorite characters in your documentary is Don. Don Blanquito, yes. Don Blanquito, he comes out as this, I will always be single, I am this this total player, I go and I rap in, in Portuguese, was it? He, he, he moved just... to Brazil to date Brazilian women and learn to speak in Portuguese <laughs> and learn how to rap in order to meet women. Right, and there was no way this guy was ever going to be getting married, and I and he didn't want his... to get married. That was the no. last thing he ever wanted. He was not right. interested. He wrote songs about it, a single forever. So what happened? He got married. Right. <laughs> big. It was the biggest surprise of all the people. I used to go, part of making this documentary was I would get invited to weddings and I have friends. We all have friends. We get invited to weddings. And I started bringing my camera and interviewing the couple and then just banking the footage and then checking back years later to see what happened. And Don was sort of the single person that I interviewed. Okay, he's the most single person I've ever met. I interviewed him in Brazil on the beach in Rio de Janeiro. And then I checked back several years later. And it just goes to show you there's somebody out there for everybody. He met the right woman. And he was married with a beautiful daughter. He's a great father. He's, he was transformed. It shows the transformative nature of a union with the right person. Yeah, and I love his wife. She was she was tough, but also very feminine and warm. And I love the scene where they're in the kitchen and reading off what what uh, what they do. Mama's in the rules. House. Mama's, Mama's rules, rules. But she has a huge knife in her hand. Which she, looks like a pointer. She's just pointing. Right? She's just pointing <laughs> with a carving knife. Uh, I will kill you if you don't follow these rules. He only emasculates you. Really, is what. Yes. That <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but but in a you know with a smile. <laughs> they both laughing about it. They had a great sense of humor about that because they had a very content uh, tumultuous relationship at the beginning, 
which you would imagine when, if you're really trying to break a wild Bronco, which is what she did, it's going to take some work and um, some bruises, but they got through it and both uh, were motivated to get through it. Yeah. And I noticed something about her that she had very strong standards. She had boundaries and standards, which is something I love because when you have that, you can be really firm, but also loving and kind at the same time. And he knew like he couldn't cross certain lines with her. And I think that for a lot of these wild Broncos, they, they are looking to be tamed in many ways. I think that, you know, a lot of those, those like wild or bullies, you know, they just want somebody to say, I love you. I, you know, I want to be in your life and I see the potential in you and you really are a loving person. You're, you're much more than what you present. That's what I'm making up about her. You're, I think, no, I think you're absolutely right. He um, was, I think when someone is in that stage where they're a womanizer or they're just enjoying life to the fullest or that's how they look at it, they're really looking for that's uh, something more uh, with more uh, structure, and you find that um, one of the things. Well, one of the things I investigated in my film was this question of who is the boss in most relationships, the man or the woman. I was curious about this, and I asked people, and it was unanimous. Everyone said the woman is the boss in most relationships, and supposedly it's a man's world, right? Not according to couples. And I think men start out with the delusion that they're the boss. And it's a delusion that's maintained for many couples. But the reality is that there is, as Dr. Pat Allen puts it, there's a president and then there's someone who's in charge of vetoing the president. <laughs> if, if they don't agree with their decisions. And that is the wife. A lot of uh, researchers or writers or psychologists like David Data spend a lot of energy on the masculine and feminine differences. And there's a reason that we look for somebody to complete us. We don't want to duplicate ourselves. We want to find someone who, by joining with them, the union makes us better. And the masculine vibe and the feminine vibe are different sets of preferences, behaviors, propensities, emotional, logic, etc. And what they have found is that you can't have two masculines together or two feminines. What works best, whether it's a gay or straight or otherwise relationship, is a masculine and a feminine. And or equal percentages of wherever you land. I have feminine and I have masculine needs both inside of me as everyone, as you do, as everyone does in different percentage. My ideal mate is someone who is the opposite percentage. And so then there are obvious territories or areas that we are, are our domains. And we learn to recognize those over time. And the conflicts happen when we are encroaching too far into each other's territories. Out of that also comes passion. The opposites attract, the differences. And there's a whole chapter in my book about how to recapture the passion because Dr. Pat Allen says, I think in the, in the documentary, her quote is that relationships 
can survive three years, basically. And then the need for biological diversity sets in. And you see the passion dropping over time with relationships. And there's a way to get it back. And it's by recalibrating that masculine-feminine polarity. This affects everything from passion to conflict to how you relate. And what uh, Chris Ryan says in the documentary is that you're not in a relationship with one person throughout the relationship. You're in a series of relationships because you're changing and evolving over time and so are they. And a new dynamic is formed every time that each one of you changes. And so you'll see a constant shifting power struggle. There's a constant struggle or a re realignment of the power situation for a couple. And conflict is when it's out of balance. And then you achieve a new normal and then you're in balance again. Happiness resumes. We all want happiness, which is stability, which is a lack of fighting or disagreement or unhappiness, pain. We want to get to that point where we're comfortable. And that is an acceptance of what is your position in the relationship. And when that's out of balance, you get, you have problems. And it's, I'm fascinated by that and how it changes over time. And it, once you become aware of it, you can do something about it. And if you have a good counselor, they can help you work through these different stages in your relationship. I, I learned so much about this over the last 13 years that I've been doing this work and why people have so much conflict. And I think that as as women became more powerful in the workforce, they often lead with the masculine, but they want a masculine energy man. And so, and many people are saying like, I want a clone. I want someone who's just like me. And that would never work. And so they end up in failure after failure of relationships. And most of the people who come to me are these strong, successful women who really want to not lead all the time and yet they can't stop arguing and having to be right. I think this is one of the biggest issues today. And on the other side, with men, we have the Me Too movement. We have men who, who are afraid to assert their masculinity because it might be seen as abusive, you know, in some way. And so we have men who are deferring to women and women seeing that as weak. And it's just a freaking mess. But hopefully we're coming out of that and and finding balance and finding the right way to be with each other right a man with a plan that's what marnie kagan put it you guys have a plan it's yeah. very it's, it's not attractive <clears throat> to be wishy-washy well what do you want to do have a plan and then the woman or the, the feminine person in the relationship as dr pat allen puts it if he's making a wrong turn let him make it don't correct him if he's the one driving shut up and it seems hard and harsh to say that, but he's turning the wrong way. Let him. What's better? Get there a little earlier or get there happier, right? <laughs> so you make choices. You do, and you're right. We, the work environment is a masculine environment. Everyone behaves in a masculine way. And if you are the feminine one in, in your relationship, you have to learn how to switch back into the feminine when you get home so that you have that polarity, which leads keeps the spark alive and keeps your relationship strong. Yeah, it's it's such an important piece. I think people overlook that a lot. And I think, you know, what I what I encourage women to do is to be vocal about what they want, like what they're attracted to. You know, I have said to men, I lead all day. I don't want to be the one making all the decisions in a relationship. I don't. I 
it's exhausting. You know, I want someone to have my back. I want, I'm really attracted to men who court me, who have a plan, you know, that is sexy to me. And if you don't say it, they don't know. Like, how would, how would a man know? They might think that, you know, you really love making all the decisions. And it's such a big turnoff to so many women. So I think we all need to speak up more and let men and women know how we want to be. Yeah, one of my friends, when I was asking for best advice, he says his rule is be kind and ask for what you want. Those are his two rules. Because people, they don't know. They can't read yeah. your mind. You have to tell someone what you like sexually, what you like at home, what you like with respect to your in-laws, whatever it is, tell them. I love to be told, to be shown, to be indicated. Show me what you like because I want to give you what you want. I want you to be happy. I want you to orgasm. I want you to have a great time and help me to provide that for you. I'm a quick learner. You only have to tell me once or show me and I'll pick it up. <laughs> but help me out. You know, guys are not mind readers. We need guidance and I will lead better knowing you better. And that's about, you know, always comes back to communication. Communication is so important. I mean, it seems obvious, right? But one of the couples I interviewed and profiled is a polyamorous couple. I got invited to their wedding. It was at a fairy convention, uh, of course. And there's a lovely couple. I I asked how did the the woman how did you get Jordan to commit to you, and Jordan said, or she said I told him he could have and do whatever he wanted, and Jordan said that that broke me, and they agreed to keep dating other people after they got married, which is obviously very uncommon, and they explained that in order to be polyamorous, they have to be very open. They have to explain everything about each other to the other person, about who they are, what they want, what they're doing. Nothing is hidden or shameful. And the secret to a good relationship is not to necessarily not to behave polyamorously. I don't think that's the, the lesson here. The lesson is to be open about who you are and what you want. Because if you're hiding some version of yourself, it's like when, you, when we start out dating, we're, it's how we're set up to fail, right? You go to a date and you want to present your best Person, here's my best version of myself, and I'm seeing the best version of you. And two masks are dating. A mask is dating a mask, and eventually that mask is going to slip, and then you, know, you can't hold it up forever, right? It just it's impossible. And the other person is frustrated, saying, "Well, I didn't know you were that person." Big surprise. Well, Jordan and Angela, they knew exactly who each other was and what they were getting and what they were in for, right or wrong, whatever you think about polyamory, at least take away that your best chance at success and longevity is communicating who you are to your partner. And it's so hard for people to take the mask off. And uh, Lennon What if they loyal. judge me? Oh no, I'll be right. judged, right? Yeah, I'll be judged or yeah, I won't be liked. You know, um, Glennon Doyle talks about it as your representative. I love that. I think that what I, what I experience is that men actually share the worst parts of themselves in the first conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's like, here I am with all my wounds and my, you know, I have this therapist who's finding out which medication I should be taking and I have a food addiction and, I ha and I'm like, oh, thank you for sharing all that. I appreciate that you took the mask off for me thinking that it was a good thing to share all this. So we have to not share our entire life either. You know, I think yeah, that, first that's date a boundary is not the place. Crossing. 
No, no, no. full confessional. <laughs> no, you, you know, work, you can work up to it. Yes, definitely work up to it. The more we like each other, the more we can accept the wounds, but people tend to connect on wounds. Oh my God, your mother was crazy. My mother was crazy. We have so much in common. You know, that's, that might be true, but that doesn't, that's not enough. <laughs> and it's not a good place to start. So um, let's talk about monogamy. And if monogamy is so difficult, why do so many people want and have monogamous relationships? Insecurity, we're very insecure. Partly it's designed by our culture, partly it's hereditary, it's what we've been shown. And if you were totally secure with your partner and yourself, there would be no fear about their behavior or your behavior. You wouldn't have to be on guard or worried. And if someone is totally honest about who they are, you no longer are insecure. The short answer, maybe the medium answer that I learned from the anthropologists and historians is that we evolved in a way that's different than what the way our culture asks us to behave now. We evolved on the African savanna, living in small tribes where everybody shared everything, food, shelter, child rearing, and uh, many anthropologists argue sex was shared amongst the entire tribe. It was not a proprietary thing the way we see it now. Any child could be yours and everyone raised every child as though it was their own. Everyone belonged to everyone. Everyone loved everyone. You can't do that in a world with seven or eight billion people. You can do that in a tribe of a hundred people where everyone knows who's pulling their weight and who isn't. And what, when that all changed was about six to 10,000 years ago with the discovery of agriculture. We stopped being nomads. We stayed in one place. We started growing our own crops and having domesticated animals. And then it occurred to men primarily, I want to be sure that all these things I own, this land, my animals, it all is going to be left to my own genetic offspring. And how can I do that? Because I have to be out in the field working. I've got to be off hunting. I've got to be away. I can't practice what the biologists call mate guarding, which you'll see birds and animals doing. They'll keep trying to keep an eye on their mate all the time to make sure that some other bird doesn't come in and, and uh, fertilize his mate's eggs. So what evolved or occurred to human beings at the time was this idea of marriage. And marriage is a way to put a social fence around a woman's sexuality, to control her sexuality, to try to preserve her eggs, to try to prevent her from having sex with someone else, to make sure that it's your genetic offspring that you are raising. And it's obviously not 100% foolproof, as you see people still cheat, but it was a way of trying to address this problem. And as a result of agriculture, this concept of monogamy evolved and became the norm. In between monogamy and um, the, the communal situation was a period of multiple wives, polygamy, where the richest men took many more wives than the poorer men. You had times and periods in history where the pharaoh or the sultan uh, or the king had a thousand or two or five thousand concubines. And what the problem with that though for society and for the king's lands is that you've got if he's got five thousand women, there's gonna be five thousand young men who are very frustrated who don't have any women. And it's not good. You can't, it's harder to hold on to power when there's unrest. 
And so over time, what evolved was this, was this idea of one man, one woman for everyone, including the king. And so the need for genetic diversity, as Dr. Pat Allen calls it, went underground, and then you started having cheating or mistresses or misters going both ways. People, it's still better. Mother Nature decides decided that genetic mixing is better than interbreeding. So there is this this need to keep bringing in outside genetics. And there's this thing called, you know, the tall, dark stranger. Well, the emphasis is on stranger. Women are attracted to the strange man and men are attracted to the woman from the other tribe because mother nature is saying you need to mix up the genes a little bit and tribes would get together and exchange uh, members sometimes in order to do that. It was part of, became part of the ritual, but now we're in a society and what's the rule is monogamy. And we all need to agree it's, it's the best way to solve what we have now, the society, the culture that we have, it's the best solution. So we're all working and struggling with it as best as we can. And it can be done. Monogamy is a good thing. But it takes an understanding of who you are and how to address it and how to keep things exciting for each other, even though you've chosen one special person for yourself. It was reminding me of the couple you just described, the polyamorous couple, because by her saying you can have whoever you want, she's really coming from a place of security. And I think that not having someone feel imprisoned, and I think a lot of people in marriage feel trapped and feel like they have no outlet and that's what leads to misbehavior. So I think creating the sense of security and well-being and diversity and uh, diversification, whatever, um, you know, keeping it fresh is, is so key because it is really not a natural thing for us to have one partner our entire lives. You know, I don't, I, I think that especially for men whose seeds were planted everywhere, you know, that was, that was ideal. And I, I'm reading a book now on, um, called Homecoming. And it's about the tribes in Africa. And back in the 1700s, when there was slave trade, it's, it's a fascinating book. And they, they have, the men have multiple wives, and they keep them in different huts. And the women don't have multiple husbands. But then there's mixed race, uh, people who are white who are in the slave industry are taking wives from the tribes and bringing them and having children with them, even though they have wives back home in London or wherever they're from. And it's, it's, it's really fascinating to me to see what life was like in those days. And that's not that long ago, 17, late 1700s. So All that Mother Nature <laughs> cares about is whether or not you as a species are reproducing successfully. There's no yeah. judgment on morality. Morality changes over time and it changes by culture and it's the rules for that society we call morality. And you, it's, we tend to be very judgmental of other cultures' morality or their behaviors through the lens of our own that we were raised because we think, of course, ours is the right one because that's how we were raised. But what is right? Mother Nature doesn't care about any of that. She just cares whether we're reproducing successfully. And I want to also just come back to something you said earlier about religious couples. And I like what you said about the um, counseling, premarital counseling. And I think there's something else that's at play for religious couples. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. And what I saw was that a lot of couples succeed because they have an intention to succeed. 
they don't come in thinking, oh, if it doesn't work out, I'm just going to get divorced. Like they, they really work at their relationship. And I think their expectations are different. I think that in our society, divorce is, is the option. Like it doesn't work out. Hey, I'm, I'm leaving. So I think some of it is what we, what we set as an intention. I don't know if you came across any of that in your research as well. Yeah, conscious intention. You have to put that into a relationship. Dr. Gottman said that, and he, he says, that relationships naturally deteriorate over time. If you don't put any conscious intention into your relationship, it will deteriorate and then end naturally. That's the trajectory you're on on any given relationship. And maybe you get to a point where you just give up. And But do you want to live your life in a state of having given up, or do you want to live your life to the fullest? And we tend to yearn for living for the fullest, right? And so how do you live with conscious intention? That means you, we each have a vitamin that we need, like in a re relationship vitamin, an emotional vitamin. If I was going to boil it down, here's the most important thing I learned in seven years of, of speaking with experts. People, pay up, pay attention, listen up right now, because I'm going to tell you the most important thing I learned. Men, what... The women in your life need, the woman in your life needs is this vitamin where she needs to be recognized and listened to and heard daily about 15. She needs, her vitamin is a 15 to 20 minutes of listening time on your, on your behalf where you need to come home, put down the cell phone, put it on, on airplane mode, turn off the TV and say, honey, how was your day? How are you feeling? And then shut up. Don't offer suggestions. Don't interject. Don't comment aside from expressing empathy. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that happened. I'm so, I'm so sorry, honey. And end with a hug. If you give her that, her 15 to 20 minutes, and I say her, it's the whoever needs it in the moment. Who, that's, this is the feminine vitamin. And I have it too, and I need it sometimes as well. Everyone does. But on average, the one who's the more feminine one needs this daily from the more masculine one. If you give that, if you provide that, your partner is going to be so much more satisfied and fulfilled, and that will improve everything, including your sex life. Everything gets better because without that vitamin, there's going to be this unknown reason for why I don't feel right, and you're, you're, he's not giving me what I need. And what is it? it? It's really very simple. Give her that listening. What have you got to lose? Try an experiment for a week. Go home and try this and shut everything off and give her that intention that conscious intention and attention and see what happens now the counterpoint to this is women don't or the feminine person don't overindulge don't ask for more than 15 to 20 minutes maybe 30 minutes maybe an hour once a week maybe sometimes five minutes don't ask for more than that because the male brain can only handle about 20 minutes or so of relationship stuff and then it, what happens is it, they call it flooding, right? Dr. Gottman says the, the, the male brain will start flooding, overloading, frustrated, can't take it anymore. And if you ask for too much, this, con, this precious resource will, over time, will be reduced. So there's a balance there. And the male vitamin that the feminine needs to give the masculine is that the masculine needs to disconnect sometimes. There's connection. We all want connection. The feminine wants connection all the time, 24-7. The masculine has to be aware of this and realize that I need disconnection sometimes as when, I'm, um, when I'm in my masculine. And the way to achieve that 
and and maintain security and not create insecurity is to say, honey, I am going fishing with my buddies for the weekend. You're announcing your disconnection before you disconnect. And at the same time, you announce when you're going to reconnect. And I can't wait to see you for dinner Sunday night at 7 p.m. Now she can be secure in that, okay, he's disconnecting, which he does once a week. Go, going to the cave, right, uh, is, is another way that uh, John Gray puts it. I'm going to my cave. I'm leaving or I'm, I'm, going, I'm playing golf. Could be for one hour. Could be for the weekend. Whatever it is. But now you know when he's leaving, when he's coming back, and then the man or the masculine person who's disconnecting has to keep your word. If you say 7 p.m. on Sunday, make sure it's 7 p.m. on Sunday. If it's going to be 9 p.m. or midnight, say midnight. Take your lumps up front. You have to keep your word. And if both people do this and give each other the vitamin emotional needs that they, that they have, if they're met, it's, uh, you're going to be much happier and much more fulfilled. And you're putting that conscious intention into the relationship and keeping it strong. And you have a much better chance for a, for a long and happy relationship. Yeah. And I think, again, for women, ask for what you need and for men too. This is so much of this is, is being clear. I need this. I need to ask for it. And I know that in the documentary, one of the experts was talking about men wanting to fix things. If you don't want to be fixed, you've got to speak up and say, I just need you to listen. Can you just listen without saying anything? I get a lot of practice with my son who's 29 years old and we take walks together every day. And, um, he's he's a person who needs a lot of quiet time and he will take himself to his room he'll say i am saturated even while we're talking he'll say i can't hear anymore and i love it i love him being direct with me because i know where i stand he's not getting pissy and passive aggressive with me he's telling me exactly what he needs and wants and he's saying it out of respect i think that we'd all thrive better in all relationships not just our romantic relationships if we could be mindful of the vitamins that we both need in our masculine feminine energy. So this is great advice. I was actually going to ask you for final words on how people can go on their last first date. I don't know if you've kind of covered it already, but if you have anything else to share, <laughs> I would love to hear it. <laughs> Pay attention. We discussed that and men need a plan the most successful, the, the sexiest thing that anyone can be is confident, project confidence. Especially if you're the one leading, if you're the masculine one, if you're the one asking someone on a date. Um, that's my best advice for you. And then to the feminine one, flirting is required. You have to invite, you gotta be the one who presents the invitation. Even though men pursue, they pursue when they're invited. Dr. Pat Allen calls it the five second rule where any woman can, you can draw any man to you by making eye contact for five seconds and holding it. One, 1,000, two, 1,000. If it's two, three seconds, that isn't, that's normal, right? But if, it's, if you hold someone's eye for five seconds, that's an invitation. If you're at a bar, you're at a mixer, you're wherever, with a single person looking for other single people, and if you see someone you like, that's how you draw that man to you. And then it's his job to pursue. But it, it, it's a formula that has two sides to it. And then my final piece of advice would be, if you want to attract the right person to yourself, be the person you want to find. Embody the qualities that you're looking for. 
because we attract people similar to ourselves. And if you're difficult, you're going to attract someone who's difficult. <laughs> and, and then it's going to be harder. Try, if you do the self-work, if, if you improve yourself, raise yourself to a higher level of emotional intelligence, you're going to attract people at a higher level or inspire them to meet you there up at that higher level. Love all of it. I could talk to you for another two hours, Roger. <laughs> this is so fascinating. Well, you uh, learn a lot. You, I, just, I just got a stack of books and then tracked down all the authors and interrogated them <laughs> because I, anyone can do that. And I just happen to make a documentary. I, I make documentaries and so I made one. It's called The Truth About Marriage. It's available on Amazon, as is the book. And the website is thetruthaboutmarriage.com, which has links to all those things. You can find me there, and I look forward to uh, you doing so. Well, thank you so much. I, I think everybody should watch this. I've already told my Facebook group, go go watch the documentary, go buy the book. It's it's great to have it all in one place and really to offer so much wisdom in a short period of time. Thank you, everybody, for watching today. And I hope that... Uh, if you love our show, that you go and rate and review us. That really means a lot to us. Join my Facebook group, Your Last First Date, buy my book, and uh, we hope you go on your last first date very soon. Have a great day. Bye.